February 2012. Let us begin on a bright morning with the sun twinkling off the waters of the San Francisco Bay. Just off Sausalito, a sailing vessel is riding at anchor. It is the kind you might say looks like a pirate ship, though the crew would adamantly deny that. It is named the Hawaiian Chieftain. The small boat has been lowered over the side, and I climb down into it with my sea bag. And my then-girlfriend, Corey, gives me a salty look and says, Don't get killed in Nigeria. We motor the short distance to the docks, where the coxswain deposits me and returns to the chieftain. From there, I'm off on the morning train to Los Angeles for a flight to Nigeria. It's 34 degrees and snowing the next day at 3 p.m. in Amsterdam. And by 9 p.m. when I arrive in Abuja, Nigeria, it is 90 and humid. Hello and welcome to episode two of this podcast. What I'm going to try with this one is to actually conflate all three of my Nigeria trips into one story so I can kind of throw in all the best parts of all three without stringing together three entirely kind of similar stories one after the other. Uh, the first trip was in February 2012, the second one is April 2012, and the third one is April 2013. Let's begin though with the most general overview of Nigeria before we get started, because if you were like me before I got my first project, you probably have no idea where Nigeria is. Um, so it is the largest country in Africa, which is interesting because it's about the size of Texas, but it's got the equivalent of about half the population of all of the United States in that area. Or to compare it for my Australian friends, it's about the size of South Australia, but it has eight times the total population of all of Australia. So definitely a lot of people in a small amount of space. So part one, arrivals. In April 2013, I started my journey to Nigeria, walking barefoot on the beach beside the Coral Sea in Northeast Australia, on a trip that would take me all the way around the world. I flew from Bundaberg to Brisbane to Dubai, where I had a 24-hour layover. Fortunately, I was able to get out of the uh, airport and check out the old souk and some other parts of Dubai. Um, then from there the next day we flew to Cairo, but the Egypt air flight was several hours delayed. So we arrived in Cairo too late for the connection to Abuja. So we were stranded in Cairo, first for several hours with no idea what was going on. And none of us had any Egyptian currency. And so we're looking at these food stands and we can't buy anything. And also this is where you kind of get the first kind of glimpse of kind of Nigerian and cultural norms and, and mentalities because a whole bunch of Nigerians were berating the um, airline desk saying, I am a, I am a business owner. You know, this is unacceptable. And um, I feel like it was kind of illustrative of two things. First of all, Nigerians are very animated people who are very prone to, to become heated if they feel like it is time to become heated. 
but also I I found that Nigerians, to them, they take a great deal of pride in being a business owner. Um, it, it is, um, even if it's just kind of a small kiosk in, in town somewhere, like to them, owning your own business, I feel like I get the impressions kind of something to be extremely proud of that they really, really aspire to and feel like, feel like it's, it's something to, to be proud of. <laughs> um, and so, so we stuck in Cairo for several hours before we had any idea what was going on. Finally found out they were going to put us in a hotel overnight. And at this point I started to become really, really unwell, um, almost feverish. I think it was actually some Texas-style chicken, quote-unquote, I had in Dubai airport, because that's the last thing I ate. But I basically was kind of delirious for the rest of that evening. And then on the flight from Cairo to Abuja, which is another several-hour, like, 10-hour flight, I had to, and I had a bulkhead or seat, and I had to keep, keep going up to go to the lavatory because I was just not feeling very well. So this was kind of, so you got to keep in mind, this is what, the third, fourth day of, of travel at this point. So it can be kind of an ordeal to, to get where you're going sometimes um, if you're going to somewhere in Africa. Um, so then we arrive in Abuja. My first impression of stepping out of the airport in Abuja is it smells like a hedge. It smells like you go to your neighbor's nice square hedge across the street and you stick your nose in it. That's what Abuja smells like. Which, when I mentioned this to some other friends who've spent some time in Africa, they looked at me funny. They were like, I would not describe any African city as smelling that nice. But the thing is, Abuja is a fairly new city. It was only built in the 80s, kind of inaugurated as the capital in 1991. Because uh, Lagos, the, the biggest city and former capital of Nigeria, is just in the far corner of the, of the uh, west corner of the country. So Abuja is a planned capital city in about the middle. Um, and it definitely has much less traffic and much less kind of pedestrian traffic or vehicular traffic in the city. I noticed already the traffic signals, none of them seem to work. But, um, but definitely seems kind of a cleaner, newer city than a lot of places in, in Nigeria. Um, most of the buildings, doesn't really have skyscrapers, most of the buildings are just a few stories tall. Uh, the kind of cityscape is dominated by the pinnacles of the National Mosque and the National Cathedral, which are about the same size, and, and I think that's very, very reminiscent of the fact that Nigeria is really roughly 50-50 Christian and Muslim, kind of evenly split. And so you can see right there in the capital that you've got them both equally represented there. But then, even these two buildings, the whole city, are completely dominated by a giant rock called Zuma Rock, which is 700 meters tall, you know, most of a kilometer tall above the ground, just looming above the city, one solid um, monolithic rock, um, which is kind of an interesting thing, not... not a usual part of a city skyline. It's a very impressive rock. <laughs> um, so I get there and um, the organization I had had their driver there to pick me up. His name is Blessing. 
Um, you definitely notice they have kind of different naming conventions in Nigeria and other places in Africa. The, the president of the whole country at the time was Good Luck Jonathan. Uh, you'll meet Hattrick later. Uh, but yeah, so Blessing was the driver. Um, and we actually arrived at uh, 9 p.m., so it was all dark, can't see the giant rock or anything. Um, it, the, the airport is about half an hour outside of the city, so we have a drive to go. And another kind of first shocking impression that I got was all of a sudden, this is a divided highway, concrete median in the middle, and all of a sudden there's cars coming towards us on our side. And I was like, uh, blessing, is, is this normal? As he's just casually swerving around them. And he says, oh, yes, like they wouldn't do it during the day, but at night there aren't any police out, so people do absolutely whatever they want. Um, these people, probably they need to get somewhere on this side of the, of the highway. And so they just, there's not a break in the median where they can make the appropriate turn, so they just are coming from this side and have to do a U-turn to get, get over to it or something. Um, and then and then we also passed like wreckage of absolutely smashed cars that looked like it was fairly recent that I think had been unsuccessfully doing these these wrong way driving maneuvers and had collided with something. Um, but of course tow trucks won't go out at night either because it's not safe for tow trucks to go out so everything is stuck there until until daylight. Uh, if you need an ambulance, I have a bad feeling you might be out of luck. Um, I was told the police do not go out at night because the police are not safe at night, and by extension I was told, therefore, you probably should not go out at night either because you're not safe either. And I was like, oh, uh, duly noted. So yes. So the next the next morning in the lobby of the hotel in Abuja, I met another volunteer named Doug. Doug is in his 70s. He's a retired beekeeper, um, but he's definitely not your 70-year-old who's just spending his time lawn bowling. He, uh, when I had met him, he had just come from Ethiopia where he had been trekking through a sandstorm to a remote volcano, visited sulfur springs, visited some really low place where they, like low altitude place below sea level where they mine salt with hand tools and loaded on camels. Um, later when I was in Ethiopia, I asked him how he planned all these things. Cause I was like, oh, that sounds fun. How do you do this? And he's like, oh, I don't know. It just kind of, kind of happened. And I was like, all right. So, so this is Doug. He, he just, he, he, he has adventures. Um, and he also, the other thing you need to know about Doug is you'd never know when he's pulling your leg or not. Frequently he starts telling you some story and you don't know if this is the overly elaborate build up to some, some punchline or he's telling the truth and you don't quite, quite know. But uh, we ended up becoming really good friends and traveled around uh, Africa together later. Um, but yes, I ran into him there my first morning there. And he proposed we go walk around town, look at, you know, honey prices and markets and things. And, you know, I had just, just gotten off the plane for the first time in Africa. I'm told that it's not safe to go outside at night. I'm, I'm a little bit freaked out. So I was 
you know, if, if it wasn't for him, I'm not sure I would have stepped out of the hotel until people came and got me. But we go walking around town, and it turns out Abuja is actually pretty safe. It's pretty uneventful wander around town. Uh, go into the markets and find that the honey, as well as other things, they had Kirkland brand like raisins on the shelves, and uh, the honey I remember seeing came from Texas. And so they have a bunch of American products on their shelves, which surely they can produce these products more cost effectively themselves. Um, in, in kind of agricultural development, this is kind of kind of a thing you want to address. Um, even though um, I'm sure in a certain extent the Americans could, could be proud to have their products on, on shelves anywhere and everywhere, but I, I feel like in, in central Nigeria they really, we really ought to help them uh, have their own products on, on their own shelves and, and all that. So, um, so that's kind of, kind of the goal here. Um, yeah, so after doing that, then we go to the organization's headquarters. Um, I'm kind of calling it the organization here. Um, it is Winrock International, and I think they, they do actually like PR, so I, I should mention them. Um, I think I'm going to generally stick with the organization because I feel like in a minute and a half you will forget what Winrock is, and uh, the organization is, is more clear. Um, but yes, Winrock is kind of international. They're based in Little Rock, Arkansas. They have field staff in the countries that they operate in. And so in, uh, in Abuja, they have a local, local headquarters with about half a dozen staff. So we meet the staff there, and uh, Doug and I are sitting down talking to the country director, Michael, when he gets a notification on his phone that a bomb has just been detonated in Kaduna, the city just north of Abuja. And he has family there, so he, he has to make a call to make sure they're all okay, and they are. But um, this this is definitely a thing that had been kind of going on. I think my flight had been postponed because of the violence. This is Boko Haram, um, who later became more famous for kidnapping a whole bunch of girls. Um, so yeah, they were blowing up bombs every now and then. Yes. Anyway, part two, going down country or up country somewhere in the country. From Abuja, it was a 40-minute flight on the local airline to Abadin, where my project was going to be. Um, now, the local flights, you might picture this. I've heard horror stories of, like, third-world flights with flying with their doors open and chickens on laps and things. The thing is, this flight was actually probably compared favorably to any domestic flight in the United States these days. Uh, like, it was just, just as clean and professional looking on the inside as, as anything you'd expect. And on a 40-minute flight, they came by with complimentary beverages and sandwiches, which you're not getting on a flight to sac from, from Los Angeles to Sacramento these days, or even to New York. So uh, I think they, you know, certain things are still better anywhere else. Um, uh, so that, uh, that compared favorably. On the minus side... Uh, that was Dana Airlines, which only operates for aircraft. About a month later, they were in the news. One of their aircraft had crashed into the Mountain of Fire Church on the ground with the death of all aboard and a number within the church. Um, and being as I'd flown that route a month earlier and there's only four aircraft, 
25% chance it was the aircraft I was on. I feel like that's a bit as as close as I would like to get to to any any air disaster. Like it was a bit it was a bit too close, frankly. Like it it made me a bit a bit uh, anxious. Just like wow, felt felt like a close call in in, in a relative sense. <laughs> um, anyway, so we arrive in Ibadan. Uh, Ibadan is a city of about three million, which makes it the third largest city in Nigeria. And incidentally, uh, to put that in perspective. If you planted your city of three million in United States, it would be the third largest city in the United States. And it would also, if you put it in Australia, it would be the third largest city in Australia. So it's safe to say it's kind of a third largest sort of city, I suppose. Um, in Nigeria, there's about three major, major ethnic groups, and then that's divided into just countless smaller ones. I think there's like 250 different individual languages. Um, but so of the three major ones, this is Yoruba land. So uh, it's the land of the Yoruba. And I found the city to be absolutely teeming with pedestrians. Just uh, the the traffic lanes are just, just clogged with, with people on foot. Uh, traffic wasn't as bad as I've seen in other African cities. I think because you can't get up to speed or anything because there's so many people and definitely not as crazy as Cairo where I don't think there or it's just anarchy on the road. Um, see almost no white people in the city of Abaddon at all and locals were not afraid to point and stare at me when they see me in the car. Um, and the local word for white person is Oyubo, which I was told means white face. Uh, Wikipedia fact-checking right now tells me that it means man with peeled-off skin. Um, and uh, Wikipedia also tells me that albino people are also called Oyibo. So you maybe it just means, you know, anyone whose skin is white, whether they're local or not. Um, you wasn't quite sure whether whether I, I should be, be offended by this, this term or not, but I, I guess it's, it's just their word. Um, but uh, the interesting thing about, about them, them staring as they did is then kind of comparatively, later I was in Guinea, another country in West Africa, and there's also not really any white people up country in Guinea, but they just kind of ignore you completely. But the Nigerians are, are not afraid to just kind of stare and point and loudly remark upon it to the person next to them. Uh, it's, it's a thing. <laughs> um, and you, when you're first time in Africa, that can that can be slightly unsettling. You're surrounded by teeming masses that are all staring at you. Um, another interesting initial observation of local people is that many of them, by which I mean like one out of ten, had kind of decorative scarification on their cheeks. Um, I'm told it used to be the higher class people that did this, but then in the British administration of the colonial era. Uh, typically, the people that worked with the administration did not have it, and so, and those people kind of became relatively more important. And so, the relative social importance of people with scarification on their faces kind of was turned topsy turvy. Um, so, it's definitely probably something someone could do an entire sociological study on. Uh, in a bad inn, I was checked into uh, a fairly nice looking little little hotel there. 
Uh, but then I get to my room and there's no water pressure. I wanted to take a shower because it was very humid and it just wasn't working. But um, then I actually got upgraded to like a suite of rooms. So it actually turned out to be pretty nice. Um, so that was that. Um, and let's see. So my first project was right there in the middle of a bad end. My second project was a few hours drive north of Abaddon. Um, I think we kind of deal with them in turn. Uh, so my first project that next morning, we always have to have a big opening ceremony. And um, and it's funny because this was my first project, so I didn't know how it was always going to be. And this was the biggest opening ceremony I've ever had. So I think I was like, oh, is it always going to be like this? But it was in the local government building and... Uh, like everyone from the local government was there, all the beekeepers were there, there were traditional elders, there were people from the local press. They had, you know, opening ceremony, they had like a choir that sang a bit and some other things, some speeches, and a traditional shaman that did this very interesting dance with, with, with traditional drumming and he was breathing fire and he seemed to kind of pretend to sacrifice a small boy with an axe or something. I don't know, it was, it was, sociologically interesting um, and uh, and so there was all that and then there were lots of pictures afterwards and then every, as everyone was kind of like dispersing and all that I see the country director looking very serious on his phone so I go up to him and he gets off the phone and he looks at me and I'm like oh, what's up Michael and he says Chris there has been an incident with Doug's team and on that cliffhanger, I will leave you until next week. Thanks for listening.